Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Simba Gill, founding CEO and president of Avello Biosciences. Thanks so much for joining us today, Simba. Thanks very much. Great to be part of the show. Wonderful. So Simba, to start off, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today. I'm an increasingly old hand and veteran in the biotech world. So started in biotech in the mid-1980s at Celtech, which was the UK's first biotech company, one of the first antibody companies in the world in, in the days in the 1980s where there were very few people who believed that antibodies could become drugs. And uh, when I started doing research on my PhD in the mid-1980s, we were still as a field using mouse antibodies, but we rapidly moved at Celtech, Genentech, Hypertech, which were really the first three antibody companies in the world to obviously developing chimeric antibodies and then humanized CDR grafted antibodies, et cetera. So starting those very, very early days of biotech, I was the 30th employee at Celtech, pretty much the most junior person in the company, but was lucky enough to work with some brilliant people, actually including my current chief scientific officer, Mark Bodmer, who's one of the real pioneers in the antibody field. But from that, did my stint at Big Pharma after an MBA, after my PhD, worked at what was Boeing and Mannheim, and uh, was really lucky to have several great experiences there, but worked very closely with Max Link, who was one of the first Big Pharma CEOs to really understand the potential of biotech. Worked in corporate development, doing a number of early deals in genomics, gene therapy, cell therapy, and was co-head of marketing for Boeing, uh, now Roche's version of EPO, which at the time was uh, the world's biggest selling drug. And then after that, I really spent my career mainly focused on disruptive, transformative platform science, had leadership roles in some of the earliest cell therapy and gene therapy companies, and then was the founding president and CFO of the world's first direct evolution synthetic biology company founded by Pim Stemmer and Alex Afferoni, Isaac Stein, Maxigen. That work went on to be awarded the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. So after Maxion, um, I sold my soul to the devil, worked in private equity for about eight years, worked for TPG, massive private equity company, was one of the early partners in their biotech fund and their growth fund, and had a double role, was investing and founding companies as well as being CEO of a spec pharma company focused on emerging markets. About seven years ago now, I decided that biotech had returned to its roots So my view was that obviously in this early couple of decades of biotech history, it was truly transformative and disruptive. And things like antibodies, gene therapy, cell therapy, synthetic biology, directed evolution were all founded quite a long time ago. I I sort of always chuckle when people talk about cell therapy being transformative and disruptive and innovative. We're in, you know, at least the third or fourth decade of cell and gene therapy history. So we're really looking at incremental improvements in those fields right now. But it felt about seven years ago that we were back in a period of science where we were once more looking at really disruptive innovations. And so it took six months off, actually, to decide where those big innovations were going to come from. We can talk more about that in a moment, but also who to work with. And actually, the second question was the bigger one, because there's actually very few people in biotech who are truly 
believers and truly experienced in big, bold, transformative platform company building around great innovative science. And so decided to work with Nubar Afayen and the team at Flagship um, and very happy to have done so. And as we looked at areas which could be truly disruptive and transformative in science, we uncovered what I'm now focused on and have been for the last several years at Avello, which is what we call the small intestinal axis, which we can talk more about. But we're very excited about that. And actually, quite bluntly, we think it's by far the most exciting thing in all of biotech today. Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like quite a storied career. And, you know, it sounds like you've seen a fair amount across a myriad of different domains, whether it be biotech, large pharma, private equity. You know, just curious, you know, given your tenure in the field, would love to sort of just hear the arc of biotech over the past few decades and sort of where you've seen some of the most exciting periods of innovation, as well as maybe some of the lulls in that period of time and how that juxtaposed to where we are today. Yeah, I think two core themes. One is scientific progress and the other is flow of capital and money, basically. So in terms of scientific progress, you know, biotech obviously is now used in a much broader term than its original meaning. And the foundations of biotech were obviously built, of modern biotech, were built upon the ability to express recombinant proteins and antibodies ex vivo. And those early days of biotech in the 1970s, 1980s, absolutely opened up massive new areas of medicine, which most people, again, did not believe that large molecules, proteins, antibodies could be used as drugs. Most of the big pharma companies in the world, actually all of them until Roche and early Sandoz, rejected biotech for a long period of time. That's ancient history. But that founding science was really around massive discoveries, which opened up the ability to use antibodies, to use proteins generally as therapeutics based on expression technologies and based on a series of other fundamental discoveries. So it really opened up completely new areas of medicine, new types of medicine, which obviously we now, decades into it, have really benefited from in terms of the impact on healthcare. Antibodies, proteins, obviously, certainly the most profitable part of the industry, the broad biopharma industry, but also arguably amongst the most important drugs in the industry. And I think in its first two, three decades, biotech opened up other fields that hopefully will prove to be as important, cell therapy, gene therapy, synthetic biology, RNA, and nucleic acids as the obvious examples. All of that happened a long time ago in terms of the original companies and the original efforts. And what that led to were a couple of things. One, a very logical focus on taking those early platforms and focusing on turning them into real products and real companies through a series of incremental improvements, which were very, very important, but weren't about opening up broad new fields. The other thing that's impacted the history and the arc of biotech is always access to capital. So I've taken several companies public over my career. As one example, in 1996, as part of a team that took a company called Megabias Public, uh, one of the two first non-viral gene therapy companies in the world. The biotech window, we used to talk about biotech windows in, in IPOs and so on, had been closed for several years, meaning it was not possible to take a company public in biotech because the markets just weren't receptive for several years. So we were one of the first companies to go public in biotech for several years. We had what was regarded as a phenomenally successful IPO. I think we raised something like $50 million, and that was one of the best IPOs of the era. And through its history, obviously, biotech has had ups and downs. But what's fundamentally changed very recently, and obviously, to some degree, almost exponentially over the last 12 months, is the ability for early-stage biotech companies to raise significant capital. And that's obviously changed the dynamic in a very big way. 
The other thing that's changed the dynamic is, you know, the creation and the rise of the term biopharma. That's not a thing. That's a made-up term. And it's a desperate attempt by major pharmaceutical companies to pretend they're biotech companies. They're obviously not. The other thing that people have forgotten is the origins of biotech, best elucidated by Bob Swanson, the founding CEO of Genentech, were based on two things. One was the fundamental science, but the other was a view that the culture of biotech needed to be different to the culture of pharmaceutical companies, with pharmaceutical companies being conservative, slow, bureaucratic organizations, which were not the best place to have true cutting-edge innovation. And so as biotech has grown, as access to capital has arrived, that's led to this artificial world of biopharmaceuticals. And one of the fascinating things for me is to see the rise of that theoretical concept at a single industry, the biopharma industry. They're different industries, meaning true biotech and the world of true innovation is fundamentally different to the world of large multinational pharma. And what's interesting in terms of that evolution is that multinational pharma has moved, again, people have forgotten this, has moved from a position where most multinational farmers for decades did not believe in the potential of biotech to now having embraced it theoretically and having created this term biopharma, again, in a desperate attempt to convince the world that large multinationals can be truly innovative. There's almost no data to support that till today, by the way but also actually repeating the same mistakes of history in terms of not actually being as innovative as they would like to believe in terms of embracing true cutting edge transformative innovation early. And you see that very recently in the last year. One thing that fascinates me is the brilliance of Moderna. And so Moderna's existence can only happen if you accept what I talked about. How did everybody miss Moderna other than Moderna? And that's because actually, despite the theoretical excitement of the rise of biopharma, major multinational pharmaceutical companies actually still are not the companies that will see great innovation that is truly transformative early. It actually makes complete sense. You know, established organizations, established societies will always be relatively conservative. However, there is much more capital to allow the rise of biopharma companies than there have been before. Big Pharma is obviously much more supportive. The type of deals that do happen when they happen typically have bigger check sizes. And then on the science side, we've clearly arrived at a place where the tools that we have allow for much faster data generation. The biology that we're discovering because of those tools expands almost literally month by month. We know more and more and more about human biology, about how things work. We have better tools that allow us to develop different types of therapies and approaches. So I think biotech as an industry has now moved to a place where obviously funding is no longer as challenging as it used to be. It's obviously a massive industry. In the early days when I was in the industry, I literally knew every single biotech company, every analyst, every investor knew every single biotech company because there weren't many. There's now, I think, literally thousands of biotech companies, which is absolutely incredible. And so there's, I think, a big challenge in terms of understanding what is truly innovative, what is incremental, what is truly high quality versus things that may not be so much high quality. So there's a lot that's changed. But I think, I think the great news is we've definitely arrived at a period which people have been hoping for for some time in, in that this is a scientific period that is absolutely leading to this being biotech century. And there's so much fantastic science uh, that's opening up so many different areas. That together with the access to significant amounts of capital, even for early stage science and a recognition on the part of multinationals, a reluctant recognition on their part that they will not be the true innovators and that they're dependent on the biotech industry, I think puts biotech in a, an incredibly exciting place. But the last piece of the puzzle is obviously leadership teams. And by definition, in the early days of biotech, there were no leadership teams with any experience. You know, Bob Swanson was in his late 20s which, when he founded biotech. 
And not only had he not had any biotech experience because it didn't exist, but he hadn't had any experience in anything very much. Uh, you know, so we've obviously evolved to a place where there are true experienced biotech entrepreneurs who've been through the drill, some people more than a couple of times. And there are people from Big Pharma who've had relevant experience, certainly for later stage biotech company development. So that's also a good thing for the industry. There's more people out there who've had the experience. The ecosystem has developed in terms of all of the different aspects of the industry that need to come together. Well, it yeah, certainly sounds like there's been fair amount of sea change in the industry. You know, one quick question I've got is, if I was to summarize the underpinnings of today's growth and this biotech century, as you describe it, there's a component of new science or new ideas. There's a component of teams and leadership, and there's a component of capital and access to capital. Which of those three do you feel like right now are the constraint? Actually, the beauty of the situation right now is that there are no constraints. So, you know, I'm a big believer in that concept of superabundant capital, but as you've been talked about in the tech world for a long time, but the thesis is not complicated. The name describes it well. There are huge amounts of capital available in the world today. The only question is, where does that capital go? But access to capital is no longer a constraint. And that changes everything once one arrives at that place. But that is true for biotech. Not all biotechs have access to superabundant capital but it is increasingly available. The science, as I said before, is quite remarkable across many different fronts. So the science is definitely not a limitation. And then, as I said, the leadership teams have arrived as well. I think maybe the leadership teams probably actually the real limitation because there's so much great science, capital constraints being removed. So how do you have multiple leadership teams of quality to chase all of the great ideas that can now be funded. So I'd revise what I said originally. I'd say it's all about the leadership teams. That's the critical thing for the industry right now. That's great, Simba. I'd be curious to hear your viewpoint on this growing trend of leadership teams at well-capitalized biotechs coming from big pharma and what you think the impact of that will be or already has been on biotech and, and perhaps what some of the trade-offs are that we all need to think about when making some of those decisions. Yeah, great question. First of all, I'm at stage of life where I'll speak very honestly. I, I think there's two sides to the response. So one, obviously, we're in an industry that is very complicated and where experience in drug development, in commercialization, in large-scale manufacturing is incredibly valuable and needed. And again, if you go back to the earliest days of biotech, none of us knew what we were doing. And many, many mistakes were made all the way through the process. So I think that experience from Big Pharma on all of those points that I've just raised is absolutely critical. And there is massive value. And it's a requirement, actually, I would say, to have people who have experience around the table across those different elements. Equally, I think it's important not to run a biotech company like a major multinational, by which I'm mainly referring to the need to have entrepreneurial spirit. And that is about individuals versus necessarily background. But again, if you look at the world of tech, the obvious point is that pick your favorite tech CEO. You may not have any, but if you would have favorite tech CEOs, they might include Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and even Jeff Bezos. And there are many others. What they generally have in common is almost no experience, but they also obviously have an incredible entrepreneurial flair. And so I think that's the challenge. How do you bring the experience that is required, I would say that, 
together with the entrepreneurial flair. And then there's one other component, which is understanding, again, depending on the type of biotech company one is trying to build, that transformational science is different to incremental science. And again, I will reemphasize that transformational science does not occur in multinational pharma. It just doesn't. And so if you're looking for transformational science leadership, it can come from people who've worked in big pharma. Absolutely. It can and sometimes does, but it's a completely different mindset. The secret is to bring together these different ways of thinking and working into one entity. You absolutely need the mindset that comes from the experience of having worked in a big pharma through professional development, through late stage manufacturing, scale up, commercialization, all of those things absolutely required. But you also need a general entrepreneurial mindset and you also need to look at science if you're doing true transformative, dis- true disruptive biology and drug development with a different lens to that that is used typically in a multinational pharma. And I think that's about individual philosophies, individual personalities versus necessarily the background that one comes from. You know, With the rise of access to superabundant capital, it also changes the dynamic that we have had for most of the industry's history where you had to kick and scream for every dollar. And, you know, there's obviously two schools of thought around what that's going to do. One is it will make biotech companies fat and lazy and inefficient because that's what happens when individuals and when companies have too much money, they don't necessarily spend it wisely. And the other is the opposite view, which is access to that capital early will allow companies to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do and get to scale more rapidly and get to become the major companies that they deserve to be. And obviously, recent history would be Moderna, who've done that brilliantly. And I think, again, both arguments are valid. It just depends on the specifics of the situation. So, uh, you know, if you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars early, then I think, you know, boards, leadership teams need to be very thoughtful and continue to be very disciplined about how they use it. I think they need to go out of their way not to become big and bloated, but it is possible. And yeah, I'd absolutely much rather start a biotech company with a billion dollars in the bank versus $10 million in the bank. And I think that does allow for greatness to arrive much more rapidly, but you just have to guard against the other side of things. And then just to wrap up, I'd say the single most important thing for building a truly transformative biotech company is that entrepreneurial leadership. And that's what one needs complemented with all the other things around the situation. So it doesn't matter what the background is on the, on the leadership team in terms of specifics. It can come from biotech. It can theoretically come from academia. It can absolutely come from large multinationals, but you need leaders who are truly entrepreneurial. Wonderful. Simba, thanks so much for sharing your unique perspective on threading that needle in the biotech startup world of you know, entrepreneurial spirit that is often extremely important in the tech world and, and balancing that with significant drug development experience that is so critical to the success of any biotech. Now, switching gears a bit, we'd love to learn a bit about the founding story of Avello Biosciences, and, and perhaps you could start off and provide a bit of an introduction to the gut and microbiome field as a whole. Yeah, the two things overlap. So the founding story goes to Nubalathien, the CEO and founder of, of Flagship, and David Berry, both of whom were real pioneers in terms of understanding the gut and the microbiome and had founded a number of companies, most notably Ceres, also a company called Kaleido, I think you're familiar with, looking at different aspects of the classic microbial ecosystem in the colon. That has gone on to lead to some very interesting developments. Series has done uh, fantastic things in terms of advancing 
the treatment of C. diff infection by using essentially microbial consortia to replace dysbiotic disease causing infections in the gut with healthy microbial ecosystems. And I think most people are optimistic they should get approval soon, which will be a landmark in the history of microbiome-based drug development. So when I joined Flagship about seven years ago, David Berry and Nubar had really led the way in terms of, I'd say, a first wave of gut and microbiome-based companies, all essentially looking at different approaches to modify the microbial ecosystem in the colon. And, you know, I very much always like to be a true pioneer. So when I looked at that field, basically my view was it was done. The founding pioneering companies were well off and up and running. But what we realized as we started to look at it based on work that was going on at flagship pioneering and in the venture labs groups, which at the time were headed up by David Berry, and work going on in academia was that microbes were doing things beyond what was going on in the colon. And we started a couple of companies, basically, to try and understand what those other things were. But it was very clear there were fundamental things going on. Some of it linked, for example, all the way back to Coley's work, which you're probably familiar with, where you know, at the turn of the last century, meaning 19th to 20th century, uh, he realized that you could deliberately infect late-stage cancer patients with serious late-stage sarcoma, for example. And sometimes those cancer patients would end up essentially cured quite remarkably through some sort of effect of bacterial infection. People have looked at that, you know, over a hundred year time frame, but nobody's really figured out what the bacteria are doing. And then separately, it was clear that outside the colon, something else was going on and that it was possible to lead to effects through action in the gut throughout the body, through something that wasn't related to the colonic microbial ecosystem. But we didn't really know what it was. And one of the things that Flagship does incredibly well is to explore. So we had a whole series of different ideas, which we explored in parallel. Ivello was essentially what we call a proto-company in flagship speak, so it's not formally a company. We were exploring different concepts around that big central theme. What were microbes doing outside of the colon and what was going on in the gut outside of the colon that we didn't really understand in the world of science and medicine? That led quite rapidly, actually, to a realization, again, partly driven from our own internal work, partly driven from work in academia, that there was what we now call something called the small intestinal axis, which represents the sensing system in the gut, happens to be in the small intestine, outside of the colon, that is constantly sensing the microbes passing through the gut and the microbes in the small intestine and recognizing structural elements on those microbes. And depending on what those structural elements are, sending signals throughout the body, which would regulate systemic immunity and inflammation. And that was just a profound set of observations and realizations. Academia through Tom Gaffsky at the University of Chicago a few years ago had observed that you could use that principle. They didn't understand exactly what it was, but they had shown that you could orally deliver single strains of microbes to activate systemic immunity in the treatment of cancer. There's a group at Mayo who had shown similar things in the other direction. So resolving disease-causing inflammation in animal models across arthritis, multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease, and beyond, all through, again, oral administration of single strains of microbes. That was complemented with our own work that we were doing within actually originally two companies under the flagship umbrella. One was the original Avello, another was another company called Apiva. We were looking at Avello originally activating immunity through this biology, which we didn't really understand. And at Apiva, we were looking at stopping disease-causing inflammation, again, through biology we didn't really understand. So it all started to become very exciting with, again, this confluence of data and academia 
showing that you could capture something that was relevant in oncology, you could capture something that was relevant to treat inflammation. And you know, on the back of very, very early data, I was able to attract Mark Bodmer, our current chief scientific officer to the company. And, and Mark is one of the true geniuses in the field, was one of the real pioneers in the antibody world. But Mark was able to take a whole series of different, completely confused ideas and synthesize and integrate them to figure out what was really going on. And actually going back to leadership in biotech, you know, that is something very, very few people have the capability to, to really integrate completely new, unknown ideas and to synthesize all of that information to come up with a clear framework for what is going on. So Mark's really someone who deserves tremendous credit for generating the focus that has now become a velo, uh, which is that focus on the small intestinal axis. We and our academic collaborators have really started to understand what's going on there. And again, it's at its simplest, a sensing system in which immune cells in the small intestine sense the structural patterns on individual microbial strains and depending on which patterns are recognized can send immunomodulatory signals throughout the body. So that has enormous implications for treating many major chronic diseases, which uh, again, we could talk about more. But that was really the, the genesis. And you know, it's, it's just fantastic history in that there were initial seeds of ideas, many of them, which we're able to explore. And through the exploration, we're able to really hone in on what was really going on. And the pace, actually, back to your earlier question, of progress has been absolutely remarkable. If you go back to the, the world of antibodies, gene therapy, cell therapy, nucleic acids, synthetic biology, you know, it literally took decades before those early scientific ideas were translated to meaningful clinical signals and an ability to reproducibly harness those early discoveries into something that could lead to pharmaceutical products. We've moved forward incredibly quickly at Develo, partly because the tools are better, partly because we've learned lessons about how to develop platforms. And I'll talk more about where we are in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that might be a great dovetail sort of into Avello's current programs. Curious to hear sort of which specific indications and, and which programs you're most excited about, along with uh, what you might sort of be seeing in the pipeline for the future. Yes, let me do that. Maybe let me make uh, one more high-level comment first. So I, I said earlier on in the, in the discussion that my own view, obviously hard for me to be objective, is that Avello is working on the most exciting thing in all of biotech. But the reason I say that is, again, to disruption and transformation of science and biology. What we've uncovered at Avello in the small intestinal axis is one of those very rare moments in the history of science and medicine in which one uncovers something that is central in governing all human biology. And when one does that, what it always leads to is transformation in, in science and medicine. But the ability of the sensing system in the small intestine, syntax, to regulate systemic immunity as a fundamental part of our human evolutionary biology is something that very, very few people, even in the world of science and immunology, understand to date, but it's real. Uh, we've clearly shown that. And because we now have that understanding of that central biology, which governs systemic immunity and immunology, we can harness it to create a completely new type of medicine. And the biology opens up something which we've always wanted in medicine and in biotech, but we've yet to have. And that is medicines which are not just effective, but also orally delivered versus injected and infused. Medicines which are very safe and well tolerated and medicines which can be developed and manufactured on a very affordable basis. And when I speak to friends in the general public who are not in the industry, you know, their response is simple. I don't understand what you're saying. Surely all medicines are safe and effective and affordable. And most of the medicines we take are oral. 
And obviously within the industry, we'll understand that the vast majority of biotech medicines are injected or infused. The vast majority of biotech medicines are, by any normal means, extremely expensive. The vast majority of medicines have significant side effects and tolerability issues. And so we don't actually have an industry which has given us not just effective, but also oral, safe, well-tolerated and affordable medicines. And what that's meant is we've been very limited in terms of the impact we can have. I think Alok and Raul, by your names, and I had a quick look at both of you as well, um, you're, you're probably like myself from, from an Indian background, but uh, as someone who's worked in biotech essentially their whole adult life, you know, I'm unbelievably proud of what we've done as an industry. It's fantastic. And you know, it's just great to have played a, a tiny role in what's come out of biotech. But my biggest disappointment in my life, actually, is how little impact we've really had on global humanity. And that's because of those limitations that I described. And what it's meant is two things that are fundamental to improving global healthcare have not been addressed. And they're arguably the two most important things. So the first is what companies like J&J and Roche call disease interception or early intervention. If you look at those two companies, they have it as a central goal to get into early disease interception, to treat disease before it becomes serious. And we've known for a long time, at least 100 years, if you're a thinking person, that beyond hygiene and vaccination, the biggest thing to improve healthcare is to intervene early in disease. It's obvious intuitively, but we're not able to do that with most biotech drugs. Again, I'm simplifying and summarizing. Secondly, obviously, we will soon be 10 billion people on the planet. Most of those people, the vast majority of them, the majority world, as I like to call them, are in Asia, Africa, Latin America. The minority of them are in Western Europe and the United States. I saw data recently that suggested that 0.5% of the world's population who would benefit from biotech drugs actually ever get access to them. That number may or may not be absolutely accurate, but it's certainly directionally true. Almost nobody gets biotech drugs in India, as an example, given not all three of us originally right. come from India. So, you know, those two things are, are just desperate needs that we have in society, the ability to intercept early, treat disease early, and the ability to treat global populations. And we're able to do that potentially with the biology we're focused on at Avello because it opens up again the ability for the first time to develop medicines which are effective, oral, safe, well-tolerated, and can be developed, manufactured, and delivered on a very affordable basis for the treatment of broad diseases. So that's always been our vision. It will lead to disruption, not just of the science, but also the business model. I talk all the time about creating, as exists in any other industry, beyond the luxury goods industry of biotech today, a parallel industry, which is a volume-driven industry. Uh, by the way, I'm very supportive of the luxury goods side of biotech. It's led to a lot of great innovation, and there is a need for it. There's a parallel need to have a parallel industry, actually, which develops medicines for very large volume and for early interception. That's actually the origin of pharmaceuticals as an industry. Uh, again, the pharma industry has forgotten that. So given all of that, the question we faced at Avello was where do we begin our focus? Because there's so many different things that we could do, so many different areas that we could work. The ability to modulate systemic immunity and immunology means that we could treat anywhere where inflammation, chronic inflammation is a core driver that cuts across the classic inflammatory and autoimmune diseases, ranging from atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, food allergy, asthma, all classic inflammatory diseases, but it also extends to most metabolic and cardiovascular conditions have inflammation, chronic inflammation as a central driver. And the other side, as you know well, in terms of the ability to activate immunity, obviously with the rise of immuno-oncology opens up the treatment of otherwise poorly treatable forms of cancer. So absolutely enormous range of possibilities. 
I gave one of my first speeches as we founded Develop. What I talked about was one day being in a world in which every human being from birth to death would take two Develop pills, one to essentially resolve inflammation, i.e. resolve disease causing inflammation, and the other to make sure tumor surveillance was optimized. But if you could do that, you would dramatically improve human longevity, dramatically improve progression to disease and allow us to live in a healthier state. So it starts to overlap with concepts around healthy aging, et cetera. So where we decided to focus on was basically the areas where we would be able to generate clinical proof of principle as well as clinical impact in the fastest period of time whilst generating lots of supportive clinical data. In inflammation, that led to a focus on the dermatological conditions, atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, because those are very rapid studies. You can literally see whether or not you're leading to improvements in the patient's conditions. You can visibly see the skin lesions because they're skin conditions. You can take biopsies and do quite sophisticated studies to see what's going on immunologically at the site of disease. But then once one has initial clinical proof principle, very rapid to approval, on a relative basis, very predictive as well. So if you have phase two data, very likely, certainly with something that's safe and well tolerated, that you will see consistent results in phase three. And most importantly, massive unmet need. Again, this is poorly understood, but the massive unmet need comes from the points I raised earlier. Patients with moderate and milder forms of psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, which is tens of millions of patients globally, have very poor therapies available to them. You know, most investors, analysts focus on things like dupixent, et cetera, great drugs, but they're only used in very severe patients, typically moderate to severe patients. So that's left the majority of patients behind. Uh, they're not taking antibodies. They're not taking classic small molecules sometimes because the JAK inhibitors, for example, have safety issues, et cetera. So huge unmet need was the other reason we wanted to go into those spaces. But then if we showed proof of concept in atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, it would open up application much more broadly across all of the different inflammatory conditions I described earlier. In oncology, obviously the focus again is on un unmet need and despite and notwithstanding the positive impact of checkpoint inhibitors and in treating certain solid tumors, there's still a massive and enormous need for improved immunotherapy across most solid tumors, whether it's triple negative breast cancer, microsatellite stable colorectal carcinoma, most forms of bladder cancer, many forms of lung cancer, et cetera, still unfortunately, very poorly treatable with IO or combination therapies. Uh, so we decided to obviously look in those areas where there's huge unmet need to see if we could actually solve the critical piece of immuno-oncology today, which is not removing the break. That's been done effectively. It's increasingly not about getting exposure to neoantigen antigen. Again, we've got new things like Tridelvi that are solving that problem. The problem we need to solve is how do we activate the immune system in an optimal way? You can't make a car go forward unless you have oil in the car, unless you have an accelerator, you can lift the brake, it doesn't do anything. You need to have an activated immune system, optimally activated to kill cancer cells. So those were the areas we decided to focus on. As I said, we've moved forward incredibly rapidly at a very, very exciting period have already generated lots of confirmatory clinical data to really validate, A, the existence of the small intestinal axis in humans, to confirm with concordant data in human clinical studies with what we've seen preclinically that we can harness small intestinal axis, that we can translate it into a new type of medicine that drives clinical signals in human patients. And now, really, we're in that last phase where we have to generate clinical signals in an optimum way. And so we're working through, obviously, optimizing dose, formulation, form, all of the classic pharmacological agents that one needs to think through as one moves into later stage drug development.
Kimba, really appreciate how you got us to think about, you know, where additional opportunities may lie that fundamentally will impact human health and, and humanity. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, perhaps on a bit more tactical level, in terms of what are some of the changes that you have seen just over the course of the last 14 months in terms of how biotech has been operating amidst the pandemic that you hope survive long after we're on the other side of it? Yeah, so I think they're all pretty obvious, but just to recap, actually, I'll start with the one that might not be obvious. It's a belief in the impossible is the one that hopefully has shifted. Again, it is absolutely remarkable what Moderna has done. Absolutely unbelievable. I have enormous respect for Stefan and, and Nubar, uh, Juan Andres, the head of tech ops and manufacturing at Moderna's on my board. And, and, and these are just remarkable human beings in terms of what they have allowed to happen, what they have made happen. And there are very, very, very few people in the world who would have said a year ago, 18 months ago, that what Moderna has done would have been possible. So I think the first thing is it's renewed human faith and hope in allowing for the impossible. More specifically, you know, the speed of drug development, manufacturing, drug launch has been, in the case of the vaccine world, exceptional. And I, I think there's a, a huge wake-up call to the industry, to regulators, to others, in terms of how can we accelerate the pace of drug development and approvals and make that the norm. You know, we are still a conservative industry that takes way too long to do the things that we do. The discovery process is a process that will always require some time, but it's relatively inexcusable that we allow patients to wait for medicines, which will in some cases save and certainly improve their lives because of administrative and bureaucratic issues. But we still have those. We absolutely do. So those need to be swept aside. And hopefully the vaccine story for COVID, not just Moderna, obviously, but the other vaccines as well, is a great example of what we can do as a society when we all come together to tackle serious problems. You know, what's fascinating is whilst COVID has obviously been unbelievably serious, et cetera, there are many other serious diseases that we've lived with and continue to live with, which we haven't treated with the same degree of urgency whether it's through the discovery, development, manufacturing, or regulatory approval process. And I, and I hope that's what we move towards doing, including you know, diseases which largely affect countries in poorer parts of the world. But what we've shown is that we can do it. Concerted, focused effort with a sense of urgency can lead to dramatic change. So I think that's the biggest thing, actually. And I think it's just a great, great example for all of us you know, throughout history. It's just been a remarkable period. And again, uh, just hats off and full credit to the people who've really led and driven those activities. Wonderful. And Simba, to wrap up, we have a number of folks that listen that I think are budding entrepreneurs or want to become CEOs of biotech companies at some point. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on maybe two or three pieces of advice that you can provide folks that are currently in VP or perhaps non-CEO seats in terms of what you think they can do to improve the likelihood that they effectively navigate to that CEO spot. Yeah. So uh, one is find great mentors. It's really, 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 really important. Two, don't go for the CEO role. Go for the ability to do something you really believe in, that you're really passionate about. Uh, I see way too many people go for title and money in the modern world of biotech. And if you want to be a CEO, the best thing to do is don't look for the CEO role. Look for the thing that you love doing and it'll come. It'll absolutely come naturally. That also will optimize for being the CEO of the right type of company. There's nothing particularly great about being a CEO. 
greatness <laughs> totally uh, great. life comes from being in <laughs> yeah yeah in fact a lot of things that are definitely not great about being a CEO <laughs> as someone who's been one for a long time um, you know greatness in, in life is about being a, a, involved in whatever role with something that is truly transformative and that makes a difference so I think that would be the second piece of advice and the third one is just work your butt off basically you will not get to the top of anything in, in life unless you work unbelievably hard. So those would be my, my three pieces of advice. Wonderful. Well, on that note, Simba, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story and the transformational science that you're pursuing at Avello and across your, your roles at Flagship and many other companies. It was a pleasure to have you on and look forward to have you back on in the future. Absolutely. Rahul, uh, look, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure and uh, really applaud you for this podcast initiative. It's great and really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.